We'll turn with you now to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus 14, we'll read the whole chapter. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi Haheroth between Migdol and the sea, opposite Baal Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people, and they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariots, chariot and took his people with him. Also he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh king of Egypt. And he pursued the children of Israel and the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army and overtook them camping by the sea beside Pi-Hahirath, before Baal-Zephron. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, so they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? Or it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you see today, you shall see no more forever. The Lord will fight for you And you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground to the midst of the sea. And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the angel of God, who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near to the other all that night. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning, watch, that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and the cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. And he took off their chariot wheels, so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, and on their chariots, and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea. The waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. 
And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to this your word as those who are in ourselves no better than your people have ever been, who are wont to disbelieve the word that comes to us, that are wont to walk by sight rather than by faith. How we pray, Lord, that you would have a victory, yes, over your enemies, but a victory even over us, that you would subdue us to yourself, that when you speak this night that we would hear and that we would listen that we would receive these words in faith, that we would believe that which you say to us. And Lord, truly, that we would believe the Lord and be saved, even as these people did. We pray, Lord, that you would have this great victory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, beloved, we come at last to Exodus chapter 14. We've been in this book called Exodus for some time. There's a book called Exodus, and it's all about the Exodus, but up until this point we have not actually come to the Exodus, the time in which the Lord's people actually exit the land of Egypt and go into the Promised Land. Now this situation remains more or less as it has been to this point, because despite that dreadful blow of the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, and indeed of the nine other plagues beforehand and the, the, uh, the continually accelerating uh, disasters that were coming upon Pharaoh and his people. Despite all that, pretty much Pharaoh has not changed. Uh, the Lord knows that he is going to yet harden his heart and change his mind as he had on every other occasion if he ever relented in the past and if he ever said, okay, okay, I'll let you go. Uh, Even now, as he tells them to leave with speed, as he brought them in in the middle of the night and tells them to to leave, now, even now, he will yet change his mind. Because the Lord has decreed it. Exodus 14.1 The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, and he says some other things, but in verse 4, Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I'm the Lord. So it's continuing one theme, which is that Pharaoh just doesn't learn his lesson. He continually hardens his heart. This is part of the decree of God. This is part of the will of God, of this man who's already hardened himself. The Lord further hardens him. But the other theme is, of course, that the Lord will gain honor over Pharaoh. That is something that was there from the very beginning. And I hope that you've seen it thus far. I hope that you've seen that the Lord intends in all of this that he will have honor in this great victory over his people, his enemy and his people's enemy, who is Pharaoh, a picture of Satan. Well, this defeat was going to happen, and God was going to gain great honor and glory from it. And the question is, what is the role for the people of Israel? We haven't really seen that thus far in the Bible We've seen the fall of man. We have seen God choose for himself a certain man, Abraham. And in fact, Abraham actually fought against some enemies and and won. But now we have the whole covenant people in their their, fullest sense. They're in captivity as slaves. And and as slaves, they're not going to be a well-equipped army. And even if they had weapons, they wouldn't be very good at it, being slaves. So what is the role for God's people in this great in this war that's going to come in this in this victory? And the answer is they're not going to do anything. They are not going to do a single thing. It is not to fight, as we'll see. Their role in this coming victory is simply to stand still and to believe God. That's what their job was. You know, in all of this, and if you're wondering what Exodus 14 is about. The word of God interprets itself wonderfully well. 
And all we have to do is go to the New Testament and to Hebrews and we find out exactly what this chapter is about. It says so in Hebrews 11.29. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. Friends, that's what this is about. It's about salvation by faith alone. This act of theirs to go in the first place to the Red Sea and then thereafter to walk into that Red Sea across to the other land, that was an act of faith. And it was through their faith that God brought salvation to his people. Now, if this really is a picture, if this really is a type of the way of God's dealings with his people, if this really is the way that God deals with his people, and that everything that happened in the Exodus is also a type of the way he deals with us spiritually, then we have to learn the lesson. We have to see this is the way God does it. Through faith. Now, we've seen, by the way, It's hard to say what is the spiritual heart of the book of Exodus because we've already said in some sense that we we saw it in the, the death of the Lamb of God. As we consider in the previous chapters, the death of the Passover Lamb. We see this is pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the center of it. That's how salvation is wrought for us. That's what has to happen first. But as the way that that is then applied to his people, the answer, so it's by the death of Christ... But the way it's applied is is through faith. And friends, that is exactly our situation. It wasn't through the death of a Passover lamb, but through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way that that happens to us is the same way. It is by faith alone. So the, the title tonight is Exodus by Faith Alone. There are four points. Some commands of God in these points. Um, one, go to the dead end. Two, do nothing. Three, lift up your rod. And four, salvation in judgment. Go to the dead end, do nothing, lift up your rod, and salvation in judgment. So first, go to the dead end, because that's what God tells him in these first few verses. I don't know if you caught... Um, the import of the, of the direction that God gave to them in the first part. But let me read it again in, in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea opposite Baal Zephron and that you, uh, you shall camp, and, and you camp before it by the sea. Now we've already said that the Lord did not take them in the most direct road to the promised land. He says, Lest they, they come to the Philistines immediately, they see war, and they turn back. So he's taking them the long way around. And now he's given them another diversion to another way. There was a way, as it were, to, uh, in from where they were to the, the promised land. But he says, no, I want you to go right there smack in the middle of the, the Red Sea there so that you're camping right before on the shore of the Red Sea. That was another diversion from what would have seemed ordinary and straightforward to them. Now he gives a rationale. He says, For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all of his land so the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. In other words, he is directing them to go to a place of of apparent vulnerability, and in fact of hopelessness, a place in which the enemies will say, well, we've got them right where we want them to be in order that the Lord might have a more total victory over Pharaoh. Now, this is, of course, very useful for us. This is useful information for us because it helps us to understand sometimes the way that that the Lord deals with us. But for them, again, this is another diversion from what they would consider what, what made sense to them from what was straightforward, from what was, uh, would seem the normal course of things. Now let me say to their credit, their response very simply was, and they did so. That was what they did. The Lord tells them, once again, you're going to divert from the normal, and you're going to go to the place where you'd li- least like to be, with your back, you know, to be between a rock and a hard place, with your backs to the Red Sea. That's where I want you to go. And to their credit, they did so. They obeyed. 
They heard the word of the Lord and they obeyed. And there's not much more to this first point. Except to say, friends, that this is what faith looks like. If it were perfectly obvious to us, if it makes sense to us, if it were what we would consider the rational, ordinary thing that we would ourselves have figured out, we would have thought of, it wouldn't be faith. The Lord calls us to believe and to do things that don't make obvious sense to us. Right? And we must believe. That's what they did. So go to the dead end, and that's what they did. But the situation would get a little bit worse than that. Secondly, he tells them to do nothing. So our second point, do nothing. Because in verse 8, we see that the Lord did exactly what he said he was going to do. He hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went without with boldness. And we, we see, by the way, that, the, the, that Pharaoh all of a sudden forgets all that the Lord had dealt with him and considers again his material interest of having all these slaves and he doesn't want to let them go. A reminder, by the way, of the way Satan thinks. Satan is continually being defeated by God over and over and over again. But all he keeps going back to thinking about is his slaves, his captives. He wants us and will pursue us no matter what, even though he is continually defeated in this way. The Lord hardens his heart and so he takes off with all these chariots, with all these horsemen, with all of this army. And of course, he overtakes them. They, these ordinary people with all their families and indeed all their livestock burdened down even with a golden treasure as they plundered the Egyptians and all the rest of these things and with their old and with their young, they are soon overtaken by these on horse. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. And what do you think happens at that moment? It was to their credit that in the absence of anything before their eyes, yes, it didn't make any sense to them, but the Lord says, go here, and they did. Praise God for it. But now their faith is being tested in a more difficult way because not only does it not make sense to them, what they see in their eyes is on one hand a, a body of water that is impassable, and on the other hand, the world's most fearsome military force, the army of the Egyptian and all of his his crack elite forces, these 600 chariots and all the rest of them, the horses and the captains that led his massive army, and they see them bearing down upon them, easily overtaking them. And that army would have destroyed any army that could have been fielded in the, in the ancient world against them, any army, and for many centuries thereafter. And there they are in their complete vulnerability and what do you think? Well, their faith is tested, it certainly is, and it wavers. And they were afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, here's where it gets bad, this is where the sin comes in, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Oh, friends, the slave mentality. So it is with God's people sometimes. So it is with people who are being called out of the world that when times get tough, that they revert to form. It's the old man talking in them, the old man talking in us. Of course, remaining in the world is going to be easier. Of course it is, because there's no conflict As soon as you are taken out of the world, as soon as you come to serve the living God, then there is conflict in the world and the flesh and the devil. Everything is against you, even you yourself. You're divided against yourself. So opposite to the the gospel that we call the, the, uh, what we call the, uh, uh, well, there's a gospel of cultural transformation, which is is one thing. Um, but of life enhancement that we hear so often, which is basically your life isn't great. Your, your life right now, it, because of your sin, isn't great, but if you follow Christ, it will be great. Well, it wasn't for the Egyptians or for the Israelites. 
You know, they were slaves, but at least they were at peace in some sense. They just carried out their slave-like existence, serving Pharaoh until their death, and they didn't see much conflict. They didn't see much war. And from this point on, there was going to be a lot of conflict in their lives. And there was going to be a lot of difficulty that they would see. Now, they were going to win, of course. God was going to deliver them. But as far as what their eyes could see, things were bad. And so they said, we told you so. We told you so. Well, again, a reminder that we should never think that the quality of the faith of God's people is pristine. Or even that it has to be. Okay? Because this is the example that God says in Hebrews 15, by faith. They went, that's what faith looks like? doesn't look like faith to me. Friends, this is the reality of salvation by faith alone. It is not that your faith has to be perfect, pristine, 100%, 10 out of 10, or any of those things. You don't have to get an A star, right? All you have to do is to believe the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That's it. It is a binary on-off sort of situation as far as God is concerned. Uh, if, if your faith is simply enough to hold, to cling to him, rather than to whatever doubts may pervade, whatever second guessings and all the rest of it may, may be part of it, however imperfect your, even your understanding of the system of theology, the only thing is, are you clinging to Christ more than you're clinging to yourself or the world? And that's all that it takes. And you're saved. Well, carrying on, um, this is the point where the people get that various, very curious command. They are losing the plot here. And this is the point in verse 13. Moses says to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. For the Lord will fight for you. And you shall hold your peace. Let's go through the list. First of all, do not be afraid. How many times has that been spoken? How many times do we see that in the gospel? How many times does the Lord say to his frightened and fearful and sinful people, yes, they are sinning in in the way that they're dealing with him at the moment. But he says, fear not. That's the word of the good shepherd to you. Who knows what you will be facing this week? Who knows? Who knows what you're facing now? Sometimes Sunday night is one of the the worst times for God's people as they contemplate going back to work, going back to the world tomorrow morning, facing difficult things. Who knows? My word, the word of God to you is fear not. I don't know what it is. I doubt it's quite as, as menacing as being backed up against an impassable body of water and the world's most fearsome elite force coming at full throttle against you. The word of God that worked for them, that was sufficient for them, that was directed towards them, is now directed to you, which is fear not. Fear not. That's the beginning of it. Secondly, or B, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. See the salvation. You stand still. You don't have to do anything, actually. To, see, to do this, you, all you have to do is stand still and see the salvation of the Lord because he is going to fight for you. He is going to accomplish this thing for you. In the end, what is it that, what is our function? It's certainly to believe, but in the end, it is also to be witnesses. God speaks. He says, believe and be saved, and we believe, and we are saved. But we are also witnesses, you see, of this great salvation. If they were not there, there would not be witnesses. You know that thereafter they were going to sing songs. In fact, the word, the people, the, the word of uh, the people of God for all eternity are going to be singing the song of Moses, going to be singing the song of the redeemed, of those who witnessed this great salvation. There needed to be witnesses to it, and so that's what their job was to be, just to see the Lord's victory. Friends, do you understand that this is the larger purpose of your existence? You want to know what your purpose is in the larger picture? It is to be a witness to God's great works in the works of redemption. And the angels needed to be around as he created us. They sang for joy at the completion of creation. They sang for joy as God created all things. They were witnesses to those things. 
And we are witnesses of something even better, of God's great salvation, God's great victory for his people. Those people, as unworthy as they were, we're going to see a most marvelous miracle, a most wonderful salvation. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is your wonderful privilege as well. You, for all eternity, will bear testimony to those around you and to declare to the living God how you watched him save you, how you watched him save others, and all the particularities and all the detail in which no one else but you can say that he has fulfilled all of his promises and saved me to the uttermost. You have witnessed it, and you will testify to it. But of course, all this is based, the faith itself, the fact that they can stand still, the fact that they're witnessing something is because that the Lord is going to fight for them, because he's such a mighty God. Now you have to understand, and as we're going to see, uh, the Lord was there in person, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just some impersonal force floating around, but in the, the, the eternal Son of God was right there with them, leading them into this battle. And there is no greater force than that. The, the, the Egyptian army, very, very impressive. The world up until that point had probably never seen such an impressive military force. But the Son of God, the angel of the Lord, is is vastly more powerful than that. And friends, that's why they could afford to stand still. If it was anything else, uh, they would need to flinch. If it was anything else, uh, they better pick up a, a rock or something. But it was the eternal Son of God in all of his majesty and, and bare power, and they were going to see that at work soon enough. And that's what we need to remember. It's not a matter, when we talk about salvation by faith alone, when we talk about exodus by faith alone, it's not conjuring up some sort of, you know, some sort of mystical power if we have enough faith or something like that. It's the object of our faith. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is infinite in his power, he, that he has such a great salvation in his hands to grant to us, that therefore our faith is vested in that which will actually save. So do nothing. First thing is go to the dead end, and secondly, it's is do nothing. And thirdly, even as he speaks to his people, something even more difficult than the other, even Moses himself, his faith is tried, as it were. We see this. In verse 15, this is thirdly, lift up your rod. This is our third point. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? You know what that means. Means that even Moses was beginning to lose the plot a little bit here, as the people complain, as the people, um, he he's a man, he's no better than they in some sense. Remember, more than once we've seen that he's no amazing person in himself; he's just a sinner. But in verse fifteen, the Lord said to Moses, "Why do you cry out to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and." Divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. That is the command. What a wonderful thing again. All this time, the Lord had been telling Moses, lift up your rod and do this. Lift up your rod and do that. And Moses barely, scarcely believed it in the, in the beginning, but he had been gaining in confidence as one sign went to another, and even greater miracles were done through the lifting up his rod and now this even greatest of things in which their lives were completely at stake. Up until this point, it was the Egyptians. He was playing, as it were, with house money. He was dealing with another people. He would lift up his rod and a plague would go to them. He'd lift up a rod and darkness would go to them. He'd lift up a rod and even disease and death would come to them. But now his own people were in a place between the rock and the hard place, the moment of truth. And the Lord says, lift up your rod, and I'm going to open up a way in the middle of the sea that all the people are going to pass. And Moses does it. It's his salvation. It's exodus by faith alone. There's nothing special in that rod, you know. Nothing particular about it. Nothing in Moses. We know that. But the word of God comes to him. He obeys. 
And this faith becomes the instrument then for this greatest of miracles up until this point. Moses stretched out his right hand. Well, he, he says, let me pick things up in verse 17. And I indeed will harden the hearts of Egyptians, and they will follow them, so I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over his army and chariots and horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and horsemen. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came uh, between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. This is the Lord. He speaks to him. He does this. And as Moses simply receives the command in faith, the angel of the Lord himself departs from where he was, leading the people. Now he goes to the rear of the people and fights for them. And on the one hand, he is a light, giving light to God's people and hope to them. But he is a, a cloud of, and shroud of darkness that keeps the Egyptians from advancing any further. And in fact, as we see, then he fights against them. He is taking off the wheels from their chariots and causing them to drive with difficulty. And the, the Egyptians themselves recognize the Lord is fighting against us. Well, friends, that's the truth. For the enemies of God, that's what they're going to find out one way or another, one day or another, that it's not us fighting them, but the Lord himself fights against his enemies. And nothing is going to help them. Nothing is going to now enable them to prevail ultimately against God's people when the Lord himself fights for us. And Moses, in verse 21, stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but people have sometimes said, well, you know, actually this miracle wasn't a miracle. It was just kind of a natural occurrence that there was a wind and a drought or something else like this, and it happened... God almost always uses some sort of secondary causation. Do you know what I mean when I say secondary causation? It means he doesn't just snap his fingers, he uses things. Sometimes he uses dust to turn into little insects, as he did in one of the earlier plagues. Or he uses water that turns into to blood. He doesn't make things necessarily appear out of dry land. Part of his plan is to ensure, indeed demonstrate his power over all the things that he's already created and to turn them to his own ends. Well, of course there was a wind. Of course there was a meteorological phenomenon. And if you were there witnessing it, you would see the wind gathering up the, the, the waves, gathering up the water in such a, a way as God had directed it. But it hasn't happened that way before. It hasn't happened since because God in his perfect providence and his dealings made it to be a miraculous salvation for his people. And so it was in verse 22 that the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground. And the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. It was an act of faith that Moses lifted up his rod in accordance with the word of God. And it was then thereafter an act of faith that the people walked in the midst of that. Because if you were there, and that in the hour beforehand you saw an impassable huge body of water, which you always knew of, probably few of them had ever seen it really, um, but they'd heard of this great sea, like you and I would, would know of some great ocean. And they knew but it was impassable. And they'd seen it in all of its extent. And now there are the great walls standing on either side, held aloft by the wind, knowing not how long that was going to last. Do you think it was an act of faith? Now, how long was it going to take them to cross even that narrow portion of the, the Red Sea? It was going to take a while. There was a lot of ground to cover. It was an act of faith for them to walk in the midst of the sea. They had to believe the word of God, and they did. And that's why Hebrews 11.9, which is our key to the whole chapter, by faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land. And that's what they did. Friends, God did it. But the thing that connected them to the work of God was faith. You understand, theoretically, there could have been an Israelite there who decided, I am not going to go in the middle of that water. 
Uh, I'm going to take my chances with the Egyptians. Maybe I'll play dead. Maybe they'll pass by. They won't notice. Maybe I'll surrender to them. And I'll take my chances there. Friends, they're still required, even in the midst of this greatest miracle, this greatest salvation, what they needed to do to actually be saved was to believe. And that's exactly what they did. They believed. And they were saved. Now, that's actually, the, in some sense, the end of the story, and a little bit, and kind of, as they do what they're told, and they actually are saved. And the Israelites made it across. But you know what? That's not really the end of the story, is it? It's not really the end of the story. Because as long as the greatest military force of the world had ever known remained at large, they weren't totally safe quite yet. And so that brings us, fourthly, to salvation in judgment. In verse 23, the Egyptians pursued and went after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. As I said, he fought for them. He took off their chariot wheels so that he drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Now, here we say, how did he do it? Well, we're saying he used the wind to, to open up the way of the sea. But at some point, and, and maybe if you're an Israelite, you say, look, even if we walk as fast as we know how, if we all run, we're not going to outrun these chariots. Okay, And we're still going to die even though we can go before us into the Red Sea. How is the Lord going to save us now? Well, friends, he, he abandons secondary causation at this point. And he reaches out his almighty hands and he simply plucks off the wheels of the chariots. All right? When they have no more wheels and they're just dragging on their axles on the, the soft ground, they're, they're not going to make it very far. All right? they're, they're not going to be able to overtake them. And the Lord is able in the end to do those kind of things. And the further that we delve and we take these steps of faith, and the closer we get into the, middle, the, the midst of it, between the rock and the hard place, the more we see that God moves from indirect means to more direct means until we see that he, he deals with him in the most direct and personal way. That's to the glory of God. God runs the show continually. You understand. There's nothing that happens in this whole universe apart from the sovereign direction of God. But the things that more particularly and directly have to do with the salvation of his people, he does them very directly and immediately so that the whole world can see that he's doing them on behalf of his people. Well, that's what happened. As I say in verse 29, the children of Israel had walked on, or sorry, um, so now he, God has done exactly what he wished. He, he, he is able to bring all of his people moving very slowly, you understand, with all their young and their old, their flocks and their herds, all the rest of them, they make it. Meanwhile, he's fighting against the Egyptians, keeping them at bay, slowing them down. But he is moving them along. They're making some progress. He wants them to make some progress, don't forget. He wants his enemies to make some progress. Why? Because he wants them absolutely in the middle of the Red Sea. So that by the time his people make it across, then they are fully, the whole army is there in the middle of the Red Sea. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and their horsemen. And Moses stretches out his hand again. Same hand, by the way. Same hand, same rod that he had done beforehand. He had opened up the Red Sea for his people. And now he does the same thing and the opposite happens. The sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. And the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, not so much as one of them remained. None of them. The most perfect, the most complete victory that could possibly be imagined. Look, there are lots of military victories that you and I would think that is a, a, an amazing victory. But you know, it is not, uh, there are almost none of them did it ever get as far as a total annihilation. The, the typical contemporary military victories 
if it even comes as far as half losses, typically that is considered uh, unusual. Uh, very often, victories happen at the 30 to 40 percent uh, destruction uh, of, the, of the opposing forces rate. A complete and total victory, whereas not so much as one man of them remains, I don't know of any such victory. Usually somebody escapes. That's an amazing feat that God had. Why did he do it? Friends, to show us that he can. To show us that he can. It was beyond their ability to save themselves. And had they taken up any sort of, of, of weapons, there is not much that they would have done in the face of such a mighty army. But God was able to destroy all of them. And they were there to see it. So the Lord saved, in verse 30, Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Do you know what happened then? And Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, so the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. That's what happened. Let me say before I turn to the very obvious applications Let me just say again that there is no salvation apart from judgment. I think I've probably said that a couple times. And I'll say it again. The salvation that God was going to to act, what he wrought there was in a destruction of his enemy. And friends, this is always his way. He has to bring judgment. He has to bring a destruction of his enemy in order to save us from our enemies. And that's exactly what he did there. Well, as I say, considering all these things, this is Exodus by faith alone. They didn't do a single thing themselves. All they did was walk. All they did was, in fact, stand still. Once they came across, that was the idea. They didn't keep on going, you know. Once they got across the other side, the Lord told them, in essence, to just look and see what was going to happen. And that's what they did. They watched the bodies. They watched the chariots flow up onto the shore dead. Well, the application for us as it was for them is that you should certainly believe the Lord. You know, I think by this point, not just by the first sign or the the second or the third or the fourth or the fifth or the sixth or the seventh or the eighth or the ninth or the tenth. You think by the tenth, the death of the firstborn, that they would see that the Lord meant what he he said. And when the Lord spoke, he was going to fulfill the promises that he made, whether for good or for ill. But when their faith was tested severely, we see the limitations of their faith. And they start saying, we told you so, should have gone back, should have never left. But the Lord brings them to another level. At every point, he's bringing them to a higher level of confidence in himself, in his word, and in his leadership that he's appointed. And that's what we should be doing with this word of God. We see the great victory that he was able to accomplish and believe in faith these things. Then we should be reiterated. We should be reinforced. We should be... We should be strengthened in our faith. Now, I said that the least amount of faith, even a mustard seed, is enough to save you. I said it's, it's binary. It's like a transistor. It's like a, a relay that is controlling some huge amount of current. You imagine some switching station in which millions of watts and volts are at hand, but some tiny little signal voltage turns that on and off. That sort of thing happens in every appliance that we have. That sort of thing happens in all of our cars. That's faith. That tiny little voltage, that tiny little, maybe some of us have a keyless entry. You walk in and that turns on the giant flow of electricity that starts your car, of which if you touched, you'd be zapped. That's all the faith that is necessary. A tiny little weak signal, either there or it's not. But he doesn't mean it to stay that way. He wants it to increase those people even with all the the flaws and imperfections in their faith they were saved by faith but he wanted them to grow he wanted them to have more faith 
And we see that the story of Exodus is taking his enslaved people and bringing them out of that, not only physically out of the land of slavery, but mentally and psychologically and particularly spiritually. And so that bit by bit, they stop trusting in themselves and they start trusting in God and his word. And more and more is their faith being built up. And friends, that's it. That's what you're here for. You want to know why you're here if you're already a believer? You know, some people don't know. They think the only purpose of going to church is evangelism. And so if they're already a believer, they, in essence, the church is only there to be an evangelistic tool. They, they start forgetting why it is they're supposed to be there. That's, again, part of the problem sometimes with some of the worst CUs in, in our universities that everything's so skewed to the purpose of evangelism that they forget they're supposed to be building up the faith of believers. You're here week by week in order that God might bring your faith from this to this to this to this. That it might be more perfect in its quality, that you might know the living God and his ways, his words, his attributes. And that you might hear his promises and believe them and see them at work. That you might be obedient to these things and made more and more into the image of the living God which he's transforming you. Believe the Lord. Secondly, let me say, as a related but distinct point, that we need to trust the word of God implicitly. Right? If, if, in the general sense, first of all, we should certainly believe the Lord. But I think we should also have an implicit trust in the word of God. Because, again, this is our situation. We, we began with, a, with the idea that that which makes sense to us is that which we're going to believe. Friends, I hope that before you die before we all go on to glory, before the Lord returns, that all of us come to the exact opposite situation in which we utterly distrust the things that come naturally to us and we say very plainly that whatever this word says, that is what I've put my entire and implicit trust in. We don't look at it askance and we don't go over it like this, the, the pagans do and, and rip it apart and subject it to their false rationales and their false reasons and say, I don't believe this, and, you know, what did a Jonah, is that really true? I, I meet Christians who say they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who say that they actually believe that the Lord raised him bodily on the third day and don't believe that Jonah was swallowed by a large fish. What's wrong with that picture? One day, friends, one day, if you're the Lord's, He's going to complete the work, and you and I, and we're going to look at this word of God and receive it implicitly, entirely, all of it. That's the whole point of there being a teaching ministry, that we might be built up into that unity of faith, into the perfection of faith, that we receive all of the word of God as he's given to us. We look and we shake our heads at these people in, in, of, of Israel, they believed him with these minor things, but they didn't believe him when something was more important. When are they going to learn? And so forth. But that's us too. We're on the same journey. And we need to trust the word of God implicitly. And thirdly, let me say this. So many things could be said here. Tons of things. But let me just remind you that the, the means of grace appear to be weak. And they're supposed to be. Okay? The means of grace, the ordinary means, the word of God, the sacraments and prayer, these are the means that God has given to us. These things are an increasing attack in our day. People left and right are turning to other things other than these means, ordinary means of grace. And the reason why they're turning to other things, you know why? Is because in this new and unprecedented situation of 2016, soon enough to be 2017, it'll be another new and unprecedented situation in 2017, and, and there will be challenges to the word of God that we've never seen before in the whole history of the world. And we must turn to something else. You know, we used to use preaching. And we used to use evangelism. And we used to use teaching people the word of God. And we used to use baptism and the Lord's Supper. But now we've got to turn to some, something else entirely. Friends, don't believe it. The means of grace have always appeared to be weak. Always. Why? Because God intends to get the glory from using them. You see? If they appeared to be so strong, if they appeared to be so self-evident, if they would appear to be the things that, that ordinary people would choose anyways, God wouldn't see to be, be seen to have the victory in them. 
means of grace appear to be weak, and that is God's plan. The message we preach, preaching itself, all these things are intended to be weak in order that God might receive the greater victory. Well, friends, let us not forget the way that God dealt with his people in times past. And that this great exodus, this great deliverance, it was by faith alone. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we turn to you. Yes, your weak people, your sinful people, but those whom you have been so, you have deigned to save, you have deigned to call away from the world to be your own. Probably in ourselves we are no better whatsoever than, than they, but Lord, we have no less of a Savior than they. We have the very same Savior. We have the very same eternal Son of God fighting for us. Indeed, one who has fought and won the victory over Satan. One who has laid down his life in order that we might be saved. And who better to entrust our lives to? What, better, what word can we possibly give ourselves to? We know that you have the words of life. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we don't have to fight this, this fight. We don't have to secure a victory against this overwhelming force ourselves. All we have to do is be still and to believe, to hear the word of God and receive in faith that which you have done and shall do for us and on our behalf. And we'll see that victory. And we will witness, we'll bear testimony for all time of the great victory that you have given to us. Heavenly Father, how we pray, therefore, that we would only gain in our trust in the Word of God, that over time we would turn away from believing those things that naturally occur to us automatically to those things which are in your Word automatically and implicitly. And how, Lord, we pray that uh, we would never turn away from these simple means, as we never turn away from the faith once delivered to the saints, but recognize, Lord, that you would have the means by which we are saved to appear to be weak in order that it might appear all the more that you are the one through Christ who are doing these things. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen.